In an increasingly complex world, Greif Philanthropic Solutions is proud to sponsor Hat Radio and the one and only Avram Rosenzweig. No one is better than Avram at simplifying the art of communication, providing inspiration, and unifying people of all backgrounds. GPS is there to help you navigate the charity landscape. Avram is there to help you navigate life. Step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height Put it all in the height And welcome back to Hat Radio. My name is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 44. Big applause from the crowd here. Thank you so much, ladies. Yeah, we've gone public, yeah. And I am uh, deeply honored to have with me today my very, very dear friend, uh, Michael White. How are you, Michael? I'm very good. I'm, I'm honored to be here on your show. Oh, man. I'm going to tell the people who you are. We're going to schmooze a little bit, and then we're going to dive into a sort of a back and forth You're going to need to tell people who I am because nobody knows who I am. Hey, no one knows who I am either, man. <laughs> really. Someone told me this week I'm old. Really. I, and this is like I'm 59. I'm thinking, oh, shit, man, I'm old, right? Do you feel old? Uh, my, when my kids tell me I'm old, well, yes. How, how old are you now, Michael? I'm 64. And how old are your children? I've got a nine-year-old, a 14-year-old, and a 17-year-old. I love that. I remember you with your little guy in the studio, but yeah. we'll get to that. So Michael really was the very first fellow to form uh, its very first Led Zeppelin cover band. Right? Yeah, the very first tribute band. Tribute band, and that was yeah. way back in, in the 70s. And you have played rock and roll with some super duper people. I posted it already on my Facebook page, like Alice Cooper. Yeah. Wow, yeah. you were the original singer for Motley Crue? Well, I played with a band called London, which was with Nikki Six, and uh, um, uh, there's a story behind that, but I, I quit the band, and like two weeks later, he changed the name to Motley Crue. So <laughs> in the book, The Dirt, he says that London, the band London, was Motley Crue before Motley Crue. So here's what Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin said about my very dear Michael White. Huh. He said, Michael White does Led Zeppelin. I do Robert Plant. Yeah. Oh, I freaking love that. <laughs> I loved it, too. <laughs> it surprised that. the hell out of me. I love that. And um, one, one more thing here, because I think the accolades that have been hurled your way are, are really worthwhile. <laughs> Remarkably you. similar to the legendary Led Zeppelin, they put on an entertaining show. And that is uh, from the Santa Barbara News and in reference to Michael White and the White, which is the band... That you've been putting together for a number of decades, again, to play Led Zeppelin music. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
There's a story behind that. Would you like to hear that story quickly? Well, hold off okay. for a sec because I have some. I'm, I'm loquacious. I'm very talkative. Absolutely. Why I do this? I know pod, that from our conversations. Exactly. <laughs> in your studio, in your basement yeah, yes. in Etobicoke, and uh, I do this podcast for me, Michael. <laughs> That's the way it should be. <laughs> so, just a few things. Firstly, I do want to thank our new sponsor. It's Mark Greif of uh, Greif Philanthropic Services. He's the guy who hired me at the United Jewish Appeal. And what's really lovely about the guy is if you listen to the sponsorship advertisement at the top of the show and the end of the show, he doesn't do it for more business. He does it because he want, he, he he does it because he wants to be more supportive of me. That's, and, that's amazing. Oh, it, it, have you had people like that in your life? Uh, just loved yeah. you and said, I don't know where this is going to go, but I just so appreciate your soul, your talent. I think sometimes I depend on that. Yeah. You know, be, yeah. because you wear your your art on your sleeve and your and your passion and everything, and and people don't get it. A lot of times they don't get it, and um, you know you need people that understand what you're really trying to do, what your your core is about. That's right. And and they they need when you find somebody like that that wants to get behind you, you know you just got to be thankful i remember a couple of years ago when we were hanging out more so there was one fellow who came into your life who gave you a lot of cash to put out an album remember that yes yeah, yeah. and i think he was one of those guys he was one of those guys yeah. there, there's been those guys that come along right i mean there's been lots of people who invest in in you know they see the art you know and they they want to they want to help get it out there and and push it forward and um it's a long process, right? It's a, it's a hard process. And, yeah. you know, you know how many hours we stay in the studio doing what we love? How many hours do you spend editing these shows and doing this? Like, and it's not for, for money. It's for the love of what you're doing. Yeah, right? that's true. So there's people that come along that say, here's some cash to help you out because I know that, uh, you know, it's hard. And making a living in music I have to reinvent myself all the time. Yeah, we're going to talk about that mm -hmm. because you have just developed a new podcast on the struggles of being a rock and roller, right? Yeah, in the entertainment business. Yeah, we're going to yeah. talk about that. I also want to give a shout out to another podcast, which is called Guys of a Certain Age. Uh, it's a really interesting uh, podcast with two guys who probably are around my age and they talk about stuff that I would like, <laughs> you know, That's like cool. like Gilligan's Island, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I love that show. Were you a ginger guy? I like ginger. I liked uh, I like Betty Marianne. Well, I like the Skipper. I like Gilligan. I mean, Gilligan was my favorite. Of did, course. Did you like right? the Skipper? I did like the Skipper. Well, I like their I like their uh, sort of um, Laurel and Hardy routine, right between the two of them. Right, right. So I was thinking the Professor. Did you like the Professor? The yeah. Kiwi made radios out of coconuts. Yeah, I liked all of him make radios out of coconuts. Yeah, could uh, use I could use a tech like that for my a, gear. I could use a coconut. Um, so that's that. I also want to advertise that my friend is looking for someone to shovel her parents, uh, you, you know, front uh, pavement. Mm. They're older folks. I think they're Holocaust survivors too. Mm. Do you need a gig? Like, do you want to do some shoveling? I would, but I have a bad back. You do, okay. I do, okay. So that's I would I would help if I could. I know you would, man. I know you would. And uh, I love your house in Etobicoke, by the way. Oh, thank you. Oh, you're right on the corner there, and what? You're minutes from the water. Yeah, Stunning. we see the water from our from our yard. Do you adore your house? I do. Yeah, yeah, 
I do. We put an addition on it, and uh, I used to have the studio on the other side, and then we we doubled the size of the house, and I moved it to the the new side. Well, that's the side you've been in. How long did it take you to move it? Uh, to to move the studio. What was it tough? To- well, I, I had the studio in the other side of the house in the basement, and then I moved that out to uh, Mississauga in a big place, and I had a huge space, but I didn't have, uh, it was too far to go. It was 45 minutes there and 45 yeah. minutes home, yeah. and then we started having kids, and uh, I needed to be around. So you're in the house. So we put the addition on in 2012, and uh, I moved it back into the new side, and got rid of a lot of the gear that I didn't really need anymore, but I had a lot of stuff. I love your, I still I love your studio and all the guitars Thanks. that you have. What do you have and a Taylor? Taylor Acoustic, is it? I have a Gibson. A Gibson, Gibson Acoustic? J, J200. That's G- the one that you liked. Oh, that's yeah. sweet. And the Dobro and the, oh, the, Dobro the Steel too. Body Dobro. Mm, I love yeah. that. But so you're basically a stay-home dad, right? Basically, yes. Yeah, like your yeah. wife goes off and does the nine to five. You she do does. Your music. She does. Uh, she works hard. Yeah, and uh, and I I do a lot of work too. Yeah. Um, but I don't play as much as I used to because I you know I used to play bars. I used to play bars all over the place, and uh, now I basically uh, have stopped doing that since two thousand nine, and I play theaters and more concert venues. So. You can play a bar every weekend, you know, two times a weekend, but you can't play concert venues two times a weekend. So, People won't pay $50 a ticket to come see So let see me ask it. you this. You're about six foot three, six four? Yeah, six three. Six three, six four. You have hair uh, down your back as you would in your rock and roll days. Um, Those so are my you, rock and roll days still. As you would in your previous rock <laughs> yeah, and roll days. I'm You're right. Just a different iteration. No, corrected well. Thank you. I apologize. And you, uh, I, I'm just wondering, like I'm imagining you going to one of your kids' uh, sporting events. Right. How are the other parents to you? <laughs> well, uh, they're they're great because because basically, um, well, that's the conversation in itself. It's a good I, one, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a good one. And you are the best interviewer, man. You you ask <laughs> questions that make you go in places that you never want, no, because, never thought of. Because you know? Michael, I'm there at a hockey game with you. I see you walking with your little guy. There you are. You're a big guy. You're a handsome guy. You're bigger than life. You got hair like flowing behind you. And I'm looking at all these other dads who are mostly bald. <laughs> you know. And the moms kind of stick to themselves, you know, but there you are. But but the difference is, uh, the correction there is that you wouldn't see me with my hair down. I put my hair back. Well, why? Well, the reason why is because uh, just something happened years ago, I guess, uh, where I realized my hair, uh, you know, I'm two different people, uh. maybe three or four different people, but... When I'm on stage, my stage persona, right, and and um, when I'm singing and I'm I'm sort of you know um, owning the the piece of property that I'm standing on uh, on the stage, right, yeah, yeah. with the band, I've got to be this guy with the hair down, you know. That's that's my identity in my head. That's what I see, right. But when I leave that stage, I put my hair back in a ponytail. And I usually wear a baseball cap. Okay. And and that you would be uh, for people who don't do that or have never done that or look and and hear me say that and go, he's a freak. You wouldn't know until you tried doing it the difference of how people act to you. 
when they see you two different ways. Yes. The same person sees me with my hair back and they look at me like I'm just some normal guy. And that's what I want to be, just some normal guy. Yeah. yeah right? right. I just want to be a normal guy. I don't want to be, you know, there, and there are people and everybody each to, to each his own, right? But there are some people that want to be that guy all the time. That would drive me insane. And at one point, I think it probably almost did. And that's why I started putting my hair back to try to differentiate between the two people when I'm. I understand completely because I am a different sort of guy than a lot of other people. I talk a lot. I'm very curious. I meet people and I want to know right off the bat real core stuff about them. So what I find immediately is that people pull away from me. So I'm meeting these dads at my son's select hockey. Mm-hmm. And this happens. And and I notice that I, as I ask them questions about themselves, who they are, what do you do, how do you feel about this stuff, that uh, they'll be a little quiet. Next time they might not stand next to me. But how that evolves is that eventually they start to appreciate it. This guy told me that he used to love these British mint chocolate bars. So I was down at Toronto General Hospital. As soon as you walk into the Toronto General Hospital, there's a candy store, which is fucking nuts if you think about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so candies. Mm-hmm. You don't cuss, do you? Not often. All right, I'm gonna, I won't cuss in the show. So, so I bought him this mint thing. I saw him at the game, and he was so grateful for it. And we really connected and started to talk. So I understand what you're saying because people do look at you differently if you're not sort of part of that culture, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I just want to be an, a regular – I just want to fit in. Yes, me too. If, my, if I walked into hockey with my hair down, yeah, I would not fit in. And I don't know if I would – some people might like it. Some people might not like it. But I don't want to offend anybody. Yeah. I don't want to be looked at as, oh, he probably does drugs because I don't. Correct. You know, uh, oh, that guy's a partier, right? No, I'm not. Yeah. Right. So I don't want to. I don't want to give that. And that would give that impression. You see me with my hair down, you know, to my chest, like you would go. What does he do for a living? Right. Uh, yes. And I just if, if he does anything. If he does anything, yeah. So that's what. Are uh, your kids cool with who you are? I don't know. <laughs> I think so. Do, I mean, do they ever respond to you like, "Daddy, I wish you had shorter hair," or uh, "Daddy, I love your hair"? I've heard no. I mean, they've they've said there's little comments every now and then. I think you know they probably. I'm. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. To be honest with you, yeah. Yeah. I do know that uh, like my son and my daughters used to they when they were young, right. When I would write songs and stuff, they would dance around to them and stuff. That made me feel so good. You know, them dancing to the songs and singing along with the lyrics, you know. Michael, once I came over to your house and we were downstairs in your studio just to set the tone. It's somewhat dark in your studio. It's a very warm environment. You're surrounded by all kinds of instruments, many of which you play. Your little guy walked in and he was probably six at the time or seven. Uh And he sat on your lap and he curled up and he shut his eyes and he fell asleep while you were teaching me singing. I don't remember that, but yeah. that's that's a great story. Well, I tell you, man, well, my my vision, my appreciation of who you are just grew dramatically oh, because wow. not only you're a wonderful, wonderful singer and rock and roller and music man, but you seem to be a really good dad. Well, thank you. I, 
it's it, I try. It's it's hard oh, to yeah. parent nowadays. Oh yeah, you're 63 with a nine year old. It's hard to parent because yeah. there's there's uh well you you know six degrees of separation. Mm-hmm. There's more than one or two degrees of separation there, and and it's hard to uh, it's hard to relate sometimes, especially about communication, like how kids communicate now with texting and there's, there's very little verbal there's it seems like the the communicating with talking i noticed that a few years back when my daughter were, was texting her friends and, and she said i was just talking to so and so about something and i said you were actually talking you had a come when did you see her no we were texting yeah so i said well you weren't really talking yeah you were texting yeah and you can't really learn how you get a read on people when they're talking, right? Rather than when they're texting. I know when when I type, when I write something out, whatever it may be, an email, it can take me 20 minutes to write an email yeah. because when I write it, I have to go back and read it. And then I realize, and, and what you mentioned earlier about me reinventing and doing a podcast now. So I'm learning this about myself. And I think a lot of people are like me that... When um, so I was writing a book uh, for all for 20 years now, I've been writing stories, road stories that happen real life, true things, not x rated, just human condition stuff, yes, that are funny, funny, funny. Yeah, and I, I write down a little little blurb to remind me of it so I can write it down later, right? But I've got like over 300 of these stories, and um, that's a lot of stories, it is, and they're all funny, they're yeah. all funny, yeah, and um. Uh, so when I started uh, developing, co-developing this podcast with a producer and a uh, writer, they said, you got to write these stories down because we don't know what these descriptions are, right? Yeah. So I started dictating them and then transcribing them. And in the process of speaking them, reading them, and then transcribing them, I realized that I think the story and, and I, I know what it is, then when I say the story, it's a little bit different. Yes. And then when I read it, I realize it's, it's even more different. Oh, it's fascinating. So you have to go back and you have to try to get it to that original thought in the end. So the, the, there's an editing process that has to go on there. And uh, yeah, it's it's... And it's just a learning experience. One of the things I really like about you is that you're American. Yeah. <laughs> like you've been living in Canada. I was, I was American by birth, but I'm Canadian by choice. I hear you. But listen, you are, there's an openness to you that I don't always find in Canadians. Okay. I know it's a brushstroke statement, but I grew up in Kitchener and had a real big challenge there because I'm very effusive. I'm very out there. And most of the people I hung out with were very guarded of their feelings. Mm-hmm. So, but, but you're not like that. You're open to ideas. You're open to thoughts. You were pretty much open to anything I would hurl at you. And I would like hurl at you stuff. And I found that you would always be there. You would be present and you would appreciate the challenge, which is what I really like about you, Michael. You mm. know, you don't hide. You don't hide. No, I don't think I, I mean, why? Right. I mean, well, people it, are it, afraid. It, they're, they're, they're frightened of being hurt. That's the bottom line. Are you frightened of being hurt? Oh yeah, no. I'm I'm frightened of being hurt, like with with my my art, like with with uh, singing and 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 stuff like that. Like there's there's a long time, you know, of um, 
of um, uh, com- confidence. Yes. Like you got to have confidence. So there's a there's a somebody said this. I'm not taking credit for it, but you know you can't have confidence until you have success, right? So when I started singing and I identify myself as a, as a musician, as a, as a performer, yes. singer. So when I started singing, everybody, I was horrible. And everybody told me I was horrible. Yeah, and you I, told I heard, me this. That's right. I heard it from everybody. And they all said, you know, <laughs> he's going to give up soon. And, and, but, but they don't know me, right? I'm, I'm very determined. You're when tenacious. I watch, and and in, in fact, I can tell you stories about how that helps me to be more determined. When people tell me I can't, I'll do it in spite of them. I'll do it in, okay, you think I can't? Watch. As I started getting better, because I said, I want to do this. Yeah. I, this is what I'm going to do. And I was horrible, but I did not give up. Yeah. And and it took several years, like probably from 70, 1971 to 1975, I was pretty bad, but getting better. And then that's when I started playing with really good people. And I realized um, after a, a, a little bit of time that when you, when you play with your friends and, and uh, people that are around you, that are, it's like the low-hanging fruit that, that you can play with, right. you're never going to get better. Right. You get better when you play with people who are better than you. Like you have to challenge yourself. Yeah. So, so I've been very lucky to be able to... I guess, first of all, recognize that and then try to surround myself with people who challenge me. And when you do that, your level just immediately starts to get better. You know, as long as you stand up to the challenge and don't don't shrivel. Well, right? you, you definitely have stood up to it, because like I said, you were you were the original lead singer with Motley Crue. You played with Jeff Healy, Alice Cooper, Steve Cropper. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But I want to step back yeah. for a second. We were talking about you being American. I was born in Long Beach by where Snoop Dogg is from. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it was like you could throw a rock and that's how close I grew up in that area. What an yeah. interesting guy he is, my God. You're a sweet man. What kind of kid were you in that environment uh, especially? Well, I'll tell you a story. Um, I could go back to the beginning, but uh, basically my, my parents, my, my biological mother... My biological mother was a waitress, and I was adopted by the people who owned the the bar that she worked in. Right. And she sold me to them. She basically got ten thousand dollars for giving me up for adopt. They paid her, so oh, she was she gave me away. Now I didn't learn that until I was like eighteen years old. Yes, but um, my parents had money at the time. But that money ran out, and they became desperate and poor. Poor. And so I was born to a, in a good, um, uh, affluent uh, family, but it turned into a very impoverished family. And um, uh, my, my um, mother committed suicide, which we'll probably talk about later. Yeah. But um, when... I was growing up from school, like kindergarten on, I lived in the urban central area. And all of my friends were African-American. 
Um, and I was the only white kid in my area. So I didn't know the difference between that and, uh, uh, you know, from that's the way it was. And all of my friends used to call me White Mike. <laughs> White Mike. And my name was Michael Moore. Yes. That's what my, my given name was. That's why I went to school as Michael Moore. But all my friends call me White Mike. And and I was one of the group, right? So as time went on, you know, that White Mike stamp kind of in my head, that's that's who I was, right? Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, it, I didn't identify that with being uh, a bad thing. Like that was, that was a good thing. That was, that was from the heart thing. Right. And, um, yeah, buddies do that. Buddies do that. That was, that was a nickname. That was yeah. a, that was a nickname, right? Integration's one That's to right. the other. That's right. And, um, so when I found out when I was 18, when I found out I was adopted and there was a lot of, um, a lot of bad stuff that went on. Uh, in my teenage years uh, with my family, I said, you know, and I was still living in that house where my mother died. And I said, I got to get out of here. I got it. And, and I graduated high school. And my dad said, um, this, this house, we were living in a rented house. He said, I'm not paying for this house anymore. Yeah. Because he had another place to, to be in. And so I had to find my own way. So I went to work at Jack in the Box and and uh, I got my own apartment, and um, I was trying to go to college. I was taking journalism. I was taking a radio TV, and um, I, I did that for a year, but I couldn't afford it. It was just too much. And, and I, um, I said to myself, you know, I don't like this person that I am now, and... I want to change my name and I want to change it to Michael White because oh. that's who I am. Oh, that's a fantastic story. You know, I, I'm, I feel like, um, you know, Michael Moore just had so much pain. Uh-huh. And when I was my, White Mike, you know, I was happy. And um, so I changed my name to Michael White. What a wonderful story. You know what this reminds me of? In Judaism... If, God forbid, a child is sick, what they'll do is they'll add a name onto their current name, and that name might be like Shabbat, oh, yeah. which is Sabbath, which is the seventh day of rest. To I give guess, it another an, another vibration. Give yeah, it another, yeah, yeah. A- another energy, exactly. That's exactly what I did. Michael, how did you feel about, how do you feel today about being sold for $10,000? Not good. Like, uh, (laughs) well, I I gathered that much. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'll I'll tell you, um, my wife, uh, all my life I was trying to find, as soon as as I found out I was adopted, I tried to find my family. Yes. Uh, and I went to the lawyer who did the adoption because my aunt gave me some records, uh, some things that, that she had been holding on to. And, um, it told about the adoption and the payment and all this stuff. And so I went to that lawyer who was still practicing and he gave me some information. He gave me the names of my brothers and sisters. I had five at the time. Right. He told me where they were living at the time of the adoption. Uh, and so I, I tried to find them, but I could not find them. 
and I looked through phone books. I, I scoured. I mean, back then didn't have the internet, and I went. I spent lots of time yeah. trying to find them. Couldn't find them. Every now and then it would pop up again. It would start to haunt me, and I would I would go through a period of trying to locate them again, especially when the internet happened, right? Um, and but no no success. And my wife, about 2011 or 12, went on Ancestry.com, found found them the first try. Like oh, she's like wow. that, but, but I'm just uh, you know she 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 located them for me, and. Were you pissed off? No, I was happy. I was, no, I know you I were. Was shocked. It's like that commercial where the where the woman goes, "Oh yes, yeah, so I just plugged this into the, you <laughs> no. know, and I got the trip in a second. No, you know? I wasn't pissed off. I was. Uh, I, uh, that's that figures. Yes, that figures yeah. because she's like that, right? And um, and uh, so she contacted my sister, who had put posted some stuff on there, and at first they didn't believe it, right? And they went to my biological mother and asked, and she denied oh. that it was true. Oh. And then she came back and said, well, our mom says that that isn't true. So I sent the records that my aunt had given me and the adoption papers from the lawyer. And then they had that evidence, and they went back to her and said, what about this? What'd and she, she looked at it, and she said, Oh, yeah. Oh, it slipped my mind. It slipped my mind. Now, see, if it would have been different, if she would have said, yes, I've been waiting for him to come back. Yeah. I didn't know where he was. That would have been a totally different thing. Yeah. But she didn't. And she came with this denial. And then, oh, I forgot. And here, you don't forget. And so then when I finally talked to her, that hurt me deeply understandable and then when i find i talked to my sisters and they told me that story too and when i talked to my mother she was not forthcoming you know she wasn't she was like i don't know uh, the 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 vibe i got was like well as long as you're here i'll talk to you um not really gonna say much you ask the questions like that's the vibe i got so i called her mom once and it made me kind of throw up a little in my mouth, yeah, for lack of a better description, because all of the things I was feeling and getting from her just didn't feel like a mom, yeah, you know. So I backed off from that and um, and did not did not. Um, did you ever see her again? I'd never saw her. I talked to her on the phone. She was in Boise, Idaho, and I had people that were um, uh, in the family who were going to fly me out there. And after talking to her on the phone and, and I kind of interviewed her, you know, over the yeah. phone to find yeah. out what, what I was going out there to meet, what was I getting into? Um, I didn't want to go. Is I didn't it, want to go, and maybe I'm a maybe I'm a jerk. People probably think, no, "Oh, you didn't, man, didn't see it. your mom." No. I, no, you know what? I just I wouldn't thought, go either. I just thought this wasn't right from the beginning, and you had a chance to redo, and you didn't redo, right? And you still don't have any concern for my feelings. So I've been dead to you. So is there is there or was there a hole in your gut in your soul? Because your mom gave you away, because your mom sold you, 
I think I was always curious as to why and and uh, you know, yeah, there was when once I found that out, it was very what you know, kind of a, a, one of those moments. Has it been patched at all because you have this oh, yeah. beautiful family now? Yeah, no, it, that was closure in a way for me when when my wife found them. Yes, I was able to connect with my brothers and sisters that are still alive. Um, and um, I spoke with them, and I spoke with them all individually. And over the course of a year or so, I came to the realization that it's a very dysfunctional family. Yes. And it's no different than anybody else's, really. Um, but they, um, uh, a lot of times when I would be talking to them, they would want to fill in blanks for me, thinking it was uh, something I needed, but I didn't need those blanks filled in. I didn't need to know what I missed out on yeah. because it wasn't my choice. I, and, and I didn't even know it existed. So I didn't want to hear about all these things I missed out on and how it was around the dinner table and what they went through. And all those things didn't really, didn't really hit me in a good way. It hit me in a, wow, I... I should have been there. And today, kind of today, when you're yeah. with your children, when you're with your wife, are you loving the way you want to love? Uh, yeah. Do you and love? Do you love well? I I hope so. I I hope I do. Your I, heart's open. You're warm. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I I try my best to be. I hear that song "Cats in the Cradle" Great all song. the time in my head. You know. Oh dear. And, and I always want to be there as much as possible, and I try to you know sacrifice as many things as I can to be there for my kids and my wife and try to do things and try to try to help and be part of a family which I never was right I never had that because even when I grew up in a family they looked at me like I wasn't part of their family they all knew I was adopted everybody knew except me so I was looked at differently so you feel like you belong now I do. Oh, that's yeah. great, man. Finally. And and that, that does fill that hole. That's right? great. That's great. So I I feel um I feel like I'm renewed. You know? So you're 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 a young boy, you come home from school one day, you go to your room and you hear a shot. Yeah. A shot rings out, and you come out and you see that your mom shot herself. Yeah. She killed herself. Yeah. Do you remember that moment oh, yeah. vividly? I mean, how do you forget that? Well, like, well, I'm always thinking to myself, what did you do? What What did you do? I uh, I didn't expect that, you know. I didn't expect. I had actually what had happened was um, I was going to a um, basketball tournament, high school basketball tournament, because I was in seventh grade, and I was going to go to a basketball tournament at the Long Beach Arena, which was between um, Compton and uh, Poly, Long Beach Poly, and a bunch of other, there was a bunch of schools, and it was the quarterfinals for basketball, because yeah. I was going to be a basketball player. Yeah, you were a tall kid, I guess. And eh? and she didn't want me to go, um, but I went anyway, and so we kind of had an argument, you know, but I... It wasn't anything wrong. I was just, I was just going down to watch this game, but 
when I came back home, she was very drunk. And she was on the phone, sitting on the couch. And I walked in and I saw her and I walked by her into my room because she was talking on the phone. And then I heard her hang up the phone, yell or something and hang up the phone. And then I heard a door slam and then I heard the gunshot. And I ran into her room and found her laying on the bed with a gun in her hand and and, um, blood coming out of her head. She shot herself in the temple. Oh, um, shit. She was on life support in the hospital, but um, I believe uh, the, the doctors decided to pull the plug or, you know, they said, we could keep her like this, but she's not going to be the same. So they they took her off life support, I believe. Um, I went back to school the next day. Yeah, yeah. Like, those there was those... no therapy involved in my childhood uh, miseries. You know, right. it was right back to school. Oy. Yeah, it was the way it was, right? So my sister, Javi, her husband was murdered. 2002 and she has six kids so she Mm -hmm. took care of those kids she took them through therapy she did everything conceivable to make sure she was healthy and the kids were healthy so before this interview I asked her I said Chav this is my friend Michael and here's what happened to him as a boy what's a good question to ask and one of the questions she said what was available in those days to help this boy out to embrace him, to give him tools to move forward. What did they say to him? How did they talk to him about the situation? And you're saying, and you're saying basically nothing. Nothing. We're sorry. That that was horrible. Are you okay? Yeah. Get some rest. Try to forget about this. That was what, that was what happened, you know? And um, I think I'm not probably I'm probably not the only one that had uh, terrible, um, you know, horrible things happen around them uh, that were never helped, whether it be uh, child abuse or, or, you know, um, uh, sexual abuse uh, as a kid, whatever it may be that that were just said, well, you know, try to put that behind you instead of actually going to any kind of therapy or anything like that. I never, it was never even an option for me. So CAMH, which is the mental health, the mental health sort of institution here Mm -hmm. in Toronto and surrounding areas, put out an interesting document about suicide of a parent and how to address a child. Oh, really? Yes, when they're obviously privy to that. So here's one piece. I'll just read it to you. You tell me what you think, okay, Michael? Are you okay with this? Yeah, yeah. You're okay? The most common question when someone dies by suicide is why? It is a question that rarely has a simple answer. The only person who really knew why was the person who died. There is no single answer that helps children understand what would lead to a parent's suicide. Even when the parent leaves a note, suicide is often very hard to understand. So... Try to keep your answer short and simple. Use words that match the child's age and development. For example, a 6 to 8-year-old child will understand things differently than a 9 to 11-year-old. 
Don't give the child more information than he or she wants. The child will likely want to know more as time goes on. You can tell a child when people die by suicide, they are not healthy and they are very unhappy. It's not the same kind of sadness that kids might often feel when they experience an everyday disappointment. It's a deep kind of sadness that goes on for a long time. Mm. What's your, what are your t- thoughts on that? Um, well, the part there that you said about leaving a note, like my mom did leave a note, and I actually got that note. Yeah. And the, I, for the life of me, I have a very vague recollection of what the note was. I don't remember it like verbatim. It doesn't. It didn't, you know, like stick in my memory. I remember the gist of it, but as soon as my aunt came over to the house. She took that note, and I never saw it again. Well, why would she have done that? I don't know. Uh, I don't know. And I've, I've asked my, my cousin, who's the only one really in the family that's still alive, um, her son, uh, if he had it. And she, he said, no, he never knew she even had it or took it. And she took the note. And I think, it's because, I think she took it because she said uh, in the note, I seem to remember, she was... Um, um, I, implicated my dad in um, ruining her life and he was the only one I was going to be with so I think she didn't want me to read that about my dad and that was her sister Um, so it wasn't she was protecting her brother she was protecting me and she took the note because she didn't want me to have um, uh, feelings against my dad that he caused it to happen did you? Well, I know that there at the time they weren't getting along, but um, I didn't know uh, this until much later, um, much later. My cousin told me that she had tried to kill herself five or six times before that. Oh, I see. When I was really young, she had cut her wrists and she had done other things that taken pills. She had taken pills many times. She took an overdose, had to have her stomach pumped. That was her favorite way of doing it. And, but they all thought it was a cry for help. So when I had come home that day and and she was on the phone, she was talking to my aunt Uh and she was telling her that she was going to do that. She Uh was, and my aunt didn't believe it because she had already tried four or five times, but she didn't say she was going to use a gun. She said, I'm going to, I'm going to end it all. And my aunt thought she's going to take pills again. Wow. Well, she's she may or may not, right? Um, and then it did happen, but it wasn't pills; it was a gun. And my aunt was devastated, obviously devastated. And I think she took that note because she has some guilt, maybe about not stopping it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, to me, humankind has this inimitable spirit. You know, and I, I've known you for a few years now. And you stand tall, you know, and you're confident. You, and, and I I know when you're on stage, uh, you're a warrior up there. <laughs> and it, to me, what's fascinating, and tell me if you agree with this, Michael, there's this little guy, man, he comes out, you know, his mom's got a, a bullet in her head. She's gone. She's dead. And you, maybe not the next day, maybe not the next week, the next month, maybe not the next few years, but at some point. You just figured out that you need to step up for yourself, and you did. And you've done a hell of a job. Yeah. I think I took probably the only 
route that I could take, um, given given all of the stuff that I had on my plate at the time. Yeah. Um, I did go the r- route that I thought I had a chance at. I was um, I was an athlete of the year for three years in a row in school because huh. uh, I played five sports and I really wanted to do sports. Um, and this is kind of answering your question in a roundabout way. Yeah. But basketball was going to be my my thing because I was I was very good at basketball. And when I was in high school, uh, our senior year, we went to the quarterfinals at the Long Beach Arena, which was the place that I went the night my mother shot herself. Right. I was in it. So I never thought of that before. But that's where I went when I was in seventh grade to watch that. In 12th grade, we actually were in that. So we were playing in the quarterfinals at the Long Beach Arena. And for that season, my coach was the winningest coach in California history. He had he had won more games than anybody ever to that point. What was his name? Willard Forrester. Okay. He was very good friends with a guy that you may know, Jerry Tarkanian. He was the coach at UNLV okay. for years. He used to bite the towel, and they had little face <laughs> faces. People used to hold up little faces of him biting a towel. So he was a character, right? And he was in several movies. He was pretty famous. I'm sure people out there, some people might know who he is. Yeah. He coached at Cal State University Long Beach, and we used to scrimmage them in the spring, in the right before, uh, right before school, so summertime. We would scrimmage his college team, university team. So when I was a senior, and I was in the best shape of my life, we went there to scrimmage them. And when I played, on when I was out there playing, I was a step behind. I was a an inch short of grabbing the ball. I was, you know, everything. I was slower than I was, just not up to their abilities. Yes, and I thought. Is it possible that I can get there? And if I do, can I compete? And it was at that game, that was before the senior year, um, I realized this isn't going to work for me. Really? I realized I think they're just too tall. They were 6'11". You know, they're, they're just too tall and too fast. And I don't think I can get up to that level Maybe I got to rethink this. And so I think it was at that moment that I, the transition between sports and music started to happen because I loved music, but I couldn't play anything. And um, yeah, I think that's when, when I actually started to go towards, I want to be a, a musician. So great segue. Hmm. And I also want to comment on those moments of epiphany which we remember, they become an important part of our narrative. Some people might say, oh, you're copping out. Why didn't you just push harder, Michael? You know, yes, you're, you're inches shorter, but so was Muggsy Bogue. Was that his name, Muggsy mm-hmm. Bogue? Um, but I couldn't handle the ball like him. <laughs> he was great. Yeah. Anyways, my point really is, I find through this interview and through our many discussions that you make decisions. Like there's an independence about you. I'm assuming there was an independence about you as, as a young person. Uh, child really and that 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 is impressive like i 
I like pointing these things out because the idea behind this show is to inspire. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind Hat Radio is to help people grow yeah. and to have those aha moments. So what I would say to the listener is, you know, consider in your own life when you have those moments of clarity, right? You're yeah. Basically, you are making a decision that nobody else can make for you. And those are crucial, crucial moments, right? Yes. Yeah. I think I think it's um, it's that g- some people just call it a gut feeling or yeah, a, or right. a uh, intuition, you know. But sometimes things happen uh, that that just kind of come over you, right? And you're kind of somebody's. It's like somebody threw a blanket over you, and you just feel like, okay, this came out of nowhere, but I feel like this is what I should do. Right, right. right. And when that happens, if you don't follow that, you're going to have a harder path. Right. And, and so you got to follow that feeling that you get, whether whatever it is, whatever. And sometimes you just don't want to do it. Sometimes you go, no, it's, that's too painful or that's too that's too hard. I, I, I'm not uh, experienced in that or whatever it may be, right? Um, so, I mean, sometimes maybe you can be misled by your own by your own confidence or your own... Um, or your own demons. Your own demons, uh, exactly. Which you wrote about. Exactly. Yes. There's demons on both sides, right? Yeah. Uh, there's demons always coming at you. So you've got you to gotta fend them off. So, uh, like, you know, a lot of people, I would say in the music business especially, right, some people are kind of delusional about their talent, about what they... And, and people think they're the greatest. Yes. Um, and like I said earlier... You have to have success before you can have confidence. Some people switch it around and they have confidence before they have success. And too much confidence, well, you're delusional now. You know, you you didn't have enough success with what you're trying to do to be able to have that kind of confidence. Yeah, no, you're 100% right. And you see that very often. I see that in the world of podcasts. There are 600,000 podcasts out there. Everybody and their mother's doing a podcast. And I listen to some of them and... Uh, you know, like, I don't want to hurt the person, so I'm not going to say anything. But you could just see that they just don't have it. They just don't have it. And that's okay, because we all have our talents. We Everybody all have our does skills. their own thing their own way. So I want to mention that you took those moments, those moments of clarity, those uh, that ability to make decisions, that maturity that lay with inside of you. And sometimes I, I think when I take a look at your life, and I had my own challenges growing up, we're sort of forced to become our own person, even at a very early age. And I'm talking five or six years old. You can actually realize to yourself, hey, I'm not going to get this from my parents. So I need to figure it out on my own. It may not be as sophisticated a thought, but it's there. So a, a couple of years ago, you and I were again sitting in your wonderful studio and we were talking about your mom. And I was as deeply intrigued that time as I am today about the experience you went through. And I am because, you know, you're a lovely man and I, I, I just feel so strongly about you and I see your little boy and I see what you had to go through. And I have a 13-year-old now. And when you have children, a lot of that imagery becomes very clear in your head. So right now I'm extending a big hug out to you. <laughs> a really you, warm embrace, Michael. I'm, I'm embracing you back. I know you are, man. I can feel that. So you write this song about your mom, well, right? Largely because of you. And it's called Baby Who's Gonna Stop You Now. Yeah. So just give us a little bit of an intro, and then we're gonna actually okay, have well, you sing it. Have play. We're gonna play the song. I, I, I mean, it's like it's like in, engraved in my brain. Yeah. We were talking, yeah. and you were asking me about my family. We had talked many times prior to that, but at this particular time, you were 
asking me about my upbringing. And so I started telling you what I just told you earlier, some of those things. And um, I told, and you asked me about my mom, and I told you that I don't really talk about it. And at that time, I didn't talk about it. And you said, what? And you kept digging and... Probing. And so finally sticking I, my nose where yeah, it didn't did, belong. You did. And I, I finally <laughs> said, okay, well, he keeps asking. He's relentless and he's a friend and I trust you. So I went ahead and opened up to you a vault that I had had rust all over it yeah. in my brain. Like I had not opened it. I clo- kept it closed. It was like one of those, one of those things that just was painful. And... Um, I carried around with me all my life up to that point. And I told you the story that I just told you a minute ago, the same thing. Uh, and you said, if, if I got this correct, you said, you got to tell that story. There's people out there that need to hear this yeah. and, and it could help them. And that touched me. That, tu- that, that was surprising to me because I had never thought of it in that way. I thought of it as... Honestly, I think at the, at in some way that vault that I had sealed had embarrassment taped across the front of it, like stenciled across the front. Embarrassment, uh, humiliation, humiliation, all these things, right? And when you said that to me, I saw I saw those fade away. I saw that go away, and I thought, hey, I never looked at it like that. I only looked at it from the point of view of me, but if I look at it from the point of view of what you just said, that could be seen in a totally different way. And maybe he's right, but at the same time, I thought when you said you should write a song about this, I think the first thing I said to you was, that's not the kind of songs I write. I don't write feel sorry for me songs. I don't want people to hear me singing about how bad the childhood was and my mother did this and oh, pity me. Like that's not the kind of thing I would ever want to do because I don't want to be seen as that. Yes. And you said, well, you should write it in your own way. You should make it the way that you want it to be. And I was thinking as you were saying that, well, that's never going to happen. Yeah. Right? But... When you left for the next week, I couldn't get that off of my mind. And I was driving in the car and I was thinking about it. I thought about it over and over in many different ways. And this is how I work all the time yeah. is I, when I'm driving is when I do my best work. I'm thinking about stuff and kind of occupied with driving and I'm thinking and I thought, well, if I was going to write a song, what would it be? What kind of music would it be? By the way, that might answer why you were a half hour late to the interview. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about getting here. But I'm just bugging I'm, you, my I'm, friend. I'm just bugging you. So, so uh, I was driving, and I thought, how would I? What would it be? And I thought, well, she was born in like 1912 or something, and I thought her music was like old timey music, like. Um, you know Benny Goodman and 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 those kinds of bands. swing music, swing. yeah, sort of like um, old timey uh, ragtime kind of uh, vibe, yes. right? And it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Now I should preface this with: I drive around with a little micro cassette for years, and if I got an idea for a song, I would turn it on and I would sing it into the micro cassette and then I shut it off. Yeah. 
And I have a pretty good memory for all the things that I come up with. And I've come up with thousands of, I've written about a thousand songs. And I have all kinds of tapes, boxes, crates of tapes. And I thought, I remember I had an idea for a song and it was old timey. And I went back and I searched those tapes. And at that time, I started I started digitizing everything. So I would just put a tape in, I'd let it digitize, and then I'd scan through it. And I found the song. Yeah. It took me a few days, but I found the song. And it was called, Baby, Who's Gonna Stop You Now? And I only sang a line or two into it. And I, I sang, you had a good time, you had your fun. You had a man, but he couldn't run. So, baby, who's gonna stop you now? Nice. Like uh, singing through a, um, a megaphone, you know? Nice. yeah. And I thought, who's gonna stop you from killing yourself? Yeah. And so I based it on that melody, and I went home, or I, I, when, when I sat down in my studio, I started writing lyrics to fit that, and I'll tell you, you really, you really tapped it with me there because when the, the, I the, the dike was broken. Oh, I wrote fifty verses, fifty verses. Did you? Fifty verses. <laughs> I couldn't stop. It was coming out. Wow. But you know that's the way it is when you're when you're yeah. a writer, and you're tapped in, and you you've done it a, a long time. Like if if you've written a lot, you know that sometimes you sit down to write. You go, I'm going to write me a story today. You can't do it. You have to be. It has to be there, right? Yeah. So when I started opening that vault, the stuff flooded out, and I wrote all of these lyrics. And the funny thing is about it, it's almost as if I could look at it, look back on it, and see that those lines were already written mm -hmm. in my head. Mm -hmm. And because when I looked at the paper, the, the third line rhymed with the 20th line, and the... 23rd line rhymed with the 15th line and so on so all i had to do was switch them around and then i had rhyming verses like totally rhyming verses whereas when i was writing them down i was trying to rhyme but i was coming up with secondary rhymes or you know, you know not real rhymes when i looked at them all and i thought wow got 50 verses here i showed it to my wife and she said you got to edit that down it's way too many verses obviously but it's real powerful yeah this is like so, a music show so, so then i i went back and i edited it down and um wrote the song and it does tell the story and i, I think i may have had to continue write like i had to write a few new things just to make it all fit together but for the most part it's exactly what came out of me that day when i sat down to write it it's all there with the exception of maybe a few little cappers you know it's phenomenal because there's stuff working inside of us all the time whether we're awake or whether we're asleep we have no idea very often what our subconscious is inventing or composing i remember when my father passed away i was in another zone and i was sitting at the shiva which is the seven days after the death and people will come visit you and i started espousing these philosophies and I'm sitting there kind of looking at myself thinking, well, who are you? Like, where is this stuff coming from? And then I realized later on I had developed it without being conscious of it. Right. And it was something that I accepted. And at the right moment, it came out. Very interesting, by the way, the right moment is crucial because I once asked Yo-Yo Ma, the mm -hmm. greatest celloist in the world, I said to him, I said, when's, when's the greatest time for you to do a show? You know what he said? What? 
when I'm half awake and half asleep, when I'm very, very tired. Mm. Why? Because my walls are down. Right. When my right. walls are down, the stuff can flow out. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. One of the great lines in this song that you wrote, which is, baby, who's going to stop you now, is, mama, your life is winding down. Things didn't turn out the way you planned. You're laying here with a gun in your hand. And you talk a lot about the end of her days, her very last days. You talk about men who were in her, in her life. Mm-hmm. Like you gave a very good view of this woman's uh, life. And the thing I think that's really gripping about it is is the approach you took, which you just discussed, because I thought before you played it to me, it's going to be very maudlin. Mm. It's going to be very down. Right. And I suspect most people would think that, but it does not have that down feeling at no. all. Actually, that was the thing that, that inspired. So you, you put the idea in my head, and I thought, that isn't going to happen because I can't write a song like that. But then when I came upon that melody, I realized it was a very up, Melody. It was a happy melody, almost, almost uh, uh, comical melody. Yeah, yeah. And comical. and and, That's and right. so so that pushed me over the edge, and I said, I could do that. I could make a, a the 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 contradiction in terms where the music is happy, but the lyrics are sad. Nobody will know that the song is sad if they're just bouncing along to the music and and sing along to the melody unless they listen closely to the lyrics they won't have a clue what this is about so it really is kind of a it's kind of a uh you know bait for people who want to hear it and who don't want to hear it they they don't have to hear it if they don't want to hear it they don't have to hear it but if they're looking for something there's a nugget there and they'll lead them in right So, so let's let's go to that song now okay
it's too late to stop you now. This time the sunshine couldn't stop you from crying. No one could help you with your blues. The doctor couldn't stop you from dying. So sad we had to pull the plug on you. That was fantastic, Michael. Thank you. I, uh... I so enjoyed listening to it. I so enjoyed that you shared it with me. I love that I was part of it. You were. You, it wouldn't be here without you. Thank you. I mean, because I live for that stuff. I want to inspire. No, you, that is what you do, man. Thank you for and saying that. That's why I'm here today. So when you're finished listening to yourself, what, what's the imagery? What are the thoughts you have in your mind? I'm happy with, uh, with the result. I'm happy with the result of that song because I think it, it put the story into a context that now it wasn't necessarily me it wasn't from my point of view that was that was trying to tell her story i was talking about her not about me so in some respects it's almost like a documentary yeah and i love documentaries that's all i watch is the history channel, channel right and the history channel and the discovery channel so I love documentaries, and in that respect, I can look at it and I can go, that is the story. That is the, it encapsulates everything about what happened with her. And I was part of that story. My life has gone on from where hers left off. And, um, you know, I'm able to, uh, I'm able to put that behind me now, and it gives me, uh, it gives me, um, you know, uh, closure over that situation i don't have to i don't have to look at it as pain anymore and i have no problem explaining and expressing that to people it's like what i said to you before about what you think about things and the way that you read it and write it like you have to edit that down in order to be able to say okay this is what i really mean just succinctly tell me for someone who's listening to the show right now and they've had a parent who's committed suicide Mm -hmm. what do you tell them it wasn't your fault. Yeah. Um, you gotta, you gotta keep going, keep moving forward, and don't get bogged down with that. You have to grieve it, and I mean, you have to grieve it. But I think the problem w- with me, I had to come to terms with it myself because I didn't have therapy. But I think you have to grieve it, but then you have to put it to rest and say. That was, that was that, and I'll never forget it. But I gotta, I gotta go forward and find. Uh, I gotta find my, my, um, my place in the sun. You know, I gotta find where I belong. You know, and don't let that, don't let that have a, um, a lasting hold on your life, uh, in a bad way. Thank you for sharing all this. You're welcome. I hope I, I'm not a therapist. I have to say I'm not a doctor, but yeah, you know, that's my advice. That's very good advice. Thank you. You're welcome. So Robert Godwin, who's a local journalist wrote over the past few years, a number of bands have been touring the U S and Canada under the banner of a tribute to Led Zeppelin, but the best impersonators of them all are the white led by vocalist, Michael White. Originally from L.A., but now based out of Toronto, they have been performing their version of Zeppelin Mania since 1979. They've performed over 4,000 shows 
to over 3 million fans around the world. And here's the kicker. Even Jimmy Page himself commented to me in 1985 that Michael does it best. Yeah, it was ah, I love that, something. man. I love that. How, how do you feel when you hear that? I feel really good when I hear that You still. must, man. Yeah, you must. Well, you know, it's funny. The things that we're talking about, about how you... Um, uh, you know how you create something for yourself in life and and you know you make those decisions something told me um well can i give a little context yeah give us context okay, here. so that was the next question yeah so when i was trying to get a record contract in the mid 70s we recorded a lot of songs, different bands I was in. We'd take it to record companies and we'd get rejected. And I even have an L.A. Times article where one of our shows, uh, uh, Robert Hilburn, uh, uh, reviewed one of our shows and said, uh, the singer is too much like Robert Plant. Uh, he said, Robert Plant, Freddie Mercury. Yes. And um, that's, the, that's the comment I would get from record companies. They would say, well, you, you're good, but we, there's already a Led Zeppelin, and, and you sound like Led Zeppelin. Right. So I couldn't get a record deal because I sounded like Robert Plant. So I was telling this to a club owner that I knew, and he said, well, if you sound so much like Robert Plant, why don't you put together a Zeppelin uh, band and come in and do some Led Zeppelin, and I'll hire you. And I said, Really? And he said, yeah. So I was in between bands and I put together a group of guys that wanted to do Zeppelin and we worked on it for a month or so and we went in and we played this show and when we drove into the parking lot, I saw the marquee and it said, Michael White and the White, a tribute to Led Zeppelin. And that was the first time I had thought of that, that moniker. A tribute to Led Zeppelin. Even though we were doing Led Zeppelin, I didn't think of it as a tribute to Led Zeppelin. So that club Import, owner... Important moments, right? That club owner coined the phrase, tribute to Led Zeppelin. There was a lineup around the building to see the to see the show. And I thought, well, that's different. <laughs> yeah, that's that's nice. a good thing. I like that. They're coming and out people, to see me, yeah. People went crazy for it. And nobody had ever done that. There was no tribute bands. There was no... Like I say, I'd never heard that before. That guy coined that phrase. And so he said, I want to have you back here in two weeks. <laughs> and so we came back in two weeks and did another show, another lineup around the building. And the shows were really good and the band was good. And, and it was a, it was something, it was timely and it was, it was at the right time, at the right moment. And we were doing the right thing uh, to make that happen, right? So we played around LA a lot. Hollywood, um, and we had crowds around the building everywhere we went right. for a couple of years. And then we started touring. Um, Dick Clark Productions got wind of what we are doing, and they hired us to do amusement parks all across the country. So we were flying in and doing Six Flags Mount, Magic Mountains and Six Flags over Texas, Six Flags over St. Louis. And um, then uh, there's a story behind it, but I met my agent, uh, manager who who started touring me all across the country and in 1983 I came home from a tour and I checked my answering service and I had a message from Peter Grant who was the manager of, manager Led, Zeppelin. of Led Zeppelin right and he basically said what the hell are you doing <laughs> who guy. are you and why are you using the name of my band yeah give it back <laughs> so so he was very curt you know and he said send me some information on what you're doing. 
I want to see if there, if, you know, I want to see for myself. So I videotaped a show that we did at Nosbury Farm the next week. And there was 5,000 people there to see us at Knott's Berry Farm, which is like a Disneyland type of place. That's a nice turnout. And and we played there with the Beach Boys who were on the other side of the park. Oh, really? So we had 5,000 to see us. They had like 15,000. So we, uh, I, I did this video. I sent him the video, but I also had T-shirts printed up yeah. with a logo that had, uh, it looked like the Led Zeppelin II logo with a blimp uh, coming out of the clouds, but it said Michael White and the White, a tribute to Led Zeppelin. And so I sent him a dozen T-shirts. I love that. And that takes balls. He got the package, and shortly after that, to make a long story short, I got uh, I I got in I got a note back from Robert Plant, from a cousin of his who used to come see our show. She said she was his cousin. I don't know if she really was, but but she she used to come see our show all the time. And she went over to visit and came back with a note from him and it said happy blouses michael because you know he used to wear open shirts oh right right yeah so happy blouses michael robert plant and she said he said he wants to meet you when he tours and then she told me some of the conversation she said that he asked her i saw the video of of michael so the video that i sent peter grant he obviously showed the band and um he said i saw the video and uh do you think 5,000 people would come to see me if I tour over there? Is that what he asked? Yeah, and I was thinking, Robert Plant really wonders if 5,000 people will turn out to see him? Of course, 5,000, you know, of course, right? Anyway, he said, come see me when I'm in the States. So, yeah, yeah. So I did. And, uh, and oh, the other thing was she had a picture of him because she went and saw him when she was over there. And he had worn our T-shirt on stage. Which is very cool. And and he played with the Honey Drippers uh, a concert near where he lived. Yeah. Just a little place. But he was on stage wearing our T-shirt. And I thought, oh, my God, this is happening. This is, <laughs> this is happening. One of the reasons why I kept the name The White for the, for the um, Zeppelin tribute was because I always wanted to get a record deal. I didn't want it to... Um, turn into a band called the Stairway to Heavens or something. Right. I wanted to get a record deal, so I tried to keep my independence throughout that, right? So when I when Robert Plant toured in 83, I saw him in Denver. I went to the backstage entrance, and I said, can you tell Robert Plant Michael White's here? And the guy said, yeah, right, I'm going to go tell Robert Plant that you're here. And just then, as as it would as it should be, Miracle he, walked, of he walked past with some uh, interviewer from MTV and he saw me and he said, Michael White? Really? He goes, let him in. That's and great. I came, I came in That's great. and he, he, he grabbed my hair and he goes, I remember when I used to have this. <laughs> and he goes, he goes, come with me. And I walked with him and we went down the hallway and he went into a meet and greet. He took me into the meet and greet and it was all this press there. And he put his arm around me and people were snapping pictures. And that's when he said what, that comment that you said earlier, Michael does Led Zeppelin, I just do Robert Plant. Man, what was that like? That was surreal. Surreal. And I, I, he stood and talked with me for like half an hour after that, just asking me questions. So he said to me, can you hit the high notes at the end of Stairway? Yeah. And I said, yeah. And he goes, every night? Mm-hmm. And I said, 
Yeah. This is what he asked you. Yeah. And he goes, you're lucky, man. I could only do it once. That's what he asked you. That's what he said. Yeah. He, but he's joking. He, he can hit those notes. He's amazing singer. He's, he's a hero of mine and countless millions of people. Considered to be one of the greatest bands ever. Absolutely. You know, do you think they are? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Historic, you know? Yeah. Um, and then at that meeting, he gave me a, a name and he said, when you get back to L.A., call Atlantic Records and ask for Phil, uh, ask for Paul, Paul Cooper, yeah. who was the vice president. He said, he's going to have something for you. So when I got back to L.A., immediately called the number and, and Paul Cooper said, oh, yeah, Robert Plant asked me to put you in the studio to record some of your own material. Really? And I thought. This is like serendipitous. Like it's Whoa. it's the it's the best thing. It's exactly it's exactly what I had hoped for. Yeah, that's and it, right. And it, in some ways, at that time, at that moment, right, it kind of crystallized that thought that if you don't ask for something, if you don't hope for something and wish for something to happen, good for yourself, nothing's going to happen except what other people make happen true and and you have to make it happen for yourself and i had wished that and wanted that and i used to dream about it i used to go to sleep thinking you know i'm gonna get that record deal i'm gonna get that record deal someday i'm gonna get that and they put me in the studio and that was 83 and in 85 i signed with them for three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. yeah and you know there's a longer story after that but that happened. It really happened. And it, and the irony is all those record companies turned me down because I sounded like Robert Plant, but I got a record deal because I sounded like Robert Plant. Yeah, that's amazing. So I... that is the irony. So never let anybody tell you you can't do something. That's what I started with earlier. Those record companies told me, no, we can't sign you. You sound like Robert Plant. You sound like Led Zeppelin. There's already a Led Zeppelin. Sorry, go away. So... They told me that I couldn't do it, but I kept doing it. And eventually, Robert Plant got me a record deal because I sounded like him. Like, it's just, it's too amazing that, that you know, it would, it would really work. But it works, and that's what people have to do. They have to continue following their instinct and their, their, their intuition and their, their gut and just do what makes you happy because that made me happy. You know, that was happiness at that time. Well, was that greater than being in the delivery room when your children were born? Well, <laughs> no, you know, that that's a, See, that's a wholly different category. Good you said no, by the that's way. A, that's a different no, category. No, but I mean, to me, again, what I'm taking out of this is the trajectory of your life. Like, it certainly wasn't straight. No. A lot of turns in the row, a lot of junctions. It was more zigzag. It was zigzag, yeah. Tur- a, a serpentine, as they call it. Yeah, serpentine. But, I mean, you're right that once in a while, something comes along, which is truly great, and it occurs in your life, and you can't believe it's happening, but it does, right? Yeah, I've found that the things, like like I just said, you wish for something, you want something really badly, and when it does happen, you're prepared for it because you yeah, thought about it. that's right. It's the things that happen that are amazing that you didn't prepare for that sometimes you can't hold on to because right. you're not prepared for it. So that's where it goes off the rails. And that's where you have to think things through. And my whole uh, take on life and, and 
career and, and destiny, you know, fate, whatever you want to call it, um, is you have to prepare. And I think I told you that when we were doing music lessons, I was saying preparation is 90% and, you know, the the actual um, uh, performance of it, the actual uh, is 10%. So you have to prepare 90% for the other 10% that, that's going to happen. You know? So so as as a tribute band uh, to Led Zeppelin, yeah. Do you see yourself as Michael White singing Led Zeppelin songs, and that is who you are? That is your career, or is it different? Is it okay? I'm going up there. Uh, I'm doing someone else's music. I'd prefer doing my own music, but this is what I have to do to make a living. That's a good question. Um, when I tried to break away from Led Zeppelin tribute yeah. uh, after my album came out on Atlantic Records, uh, I had a lot of pushback from people who made a lot of money off of me. So when the album came out, I had been off the road for two years, and the agents and and all over the place, the agents regionally and uh, in Toronto and L.A. and New York, they wanted to put that Zeppelin, the white, back on the market and make money. And I was telling them, no, now I'm going to do my own stuff. And so they came back at me and said, well, if you want to do your own stuff, you're going to make $500 a night. If you're going to do Led Zeppelin, you're going to make $2,000 a night. Mm -hmm. What do you want to do? Mm -hmm. So what do you do? So I said, Let's do both then, right? So we made a compromise, but, you know, you can't really... The compromise is everything. Compromise is where you separate the, you know, the cream of from the milk. Yes. You know, you, you're going you're gonna to make compromises. you got to be the right compromises. And that compromise didn't work because people would come to the show wanting Zeppelin, and then when i do my own material, they'd be yelling Zeppelin. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and of course, when I did shows where I just did my, my music, you know, they weren't well attended. So do you start over? Like, it's a hard one because you need to, you need to make money to, uh, to uh, pay the bills. And you can't, I was touring North America, you know, coast to coast, and I needed shows. I couldn't play like five shows. I had to do 50 shows. Mm-hmm. Right, mm-hmm. so we'd be out for three months, doing fifty shows, and and uh, the band I was hiring, I had to pay, so I I couldn't I didn't have money in the bank to go. Uh, okay, guys, I'm going to bankroll this. We're going to go out and play seven shows across the country. I had to go. Well, how am I going to pay these guys? How am I going to put fuel in the motorhome? How am I going to, you know, pay my bills? Right. Got right. to do the, I guess we got to do the Zeppelin and hope the record takes off. And the record did take off in a way, but it wasn't backed properly. And that's a that's a whole nother issue. You know, um, I tell the story like nowadays it's different because record deals don't really exist like they used to. Right. But back in the day, everybody wanted a record deal. But once you got the record deal, that was your goal being completed right but no that's where it starts mm-hmm, 
Mm-hmm. It starts yeah, I remember there. you told me this. Yes. That's where it starts. And then, now you need a, a new plan. Mm-hmm. And if you arrive at that goal of getting a record deal without the new plan for the for the next three years, you're done. You're cooked. Yeah, you know? it's like I just want to get married and boom, I'm married. What now? Yeah, kind so, of. Yeah. So are you... Are you uh, are you satisfied with your lot in music? Oh yeah. Have you accomplished what you set out to accomplish? Yeah, I I, I feel like I've I feel I mean I did a lot of things with a lot of people. Was I famous? No. Did I do some things that are you know unique? Yes. I think I achieved, and I don't like to look at them as achievements. Uh, so much because you know that would that would um, that would involve being over. Yeah, I never really achieved anything uh, f- that was final. I had some moments that were really nice, really nice, and really nice. And then um, I was moving my hand up and down as I said, "Really nice" three I, times. I saw that, <laughs> but um, you know, you just keep going forward. And, and you keep going forward and you keep keep your head up, keep a positive attitude and try to realize why things aren't working if they're not. And that's where the reinvention comes in and the reimagination of what am I doing? How can I do this differently? How can I how can I make this better? You know, what what is missing from my from my life um you know i'm talking about career right what's missing from my performances that i could make better so your question in a long roundabout way am i happy with doing led zeppelin do i see myself as that no i see myself as a performer yes and a singer and uh in the last three years i've incorporated um uh so now i do orchestral zeppelin and the who i love that so i add the Who in there, so we're doing a set of The Who and a set of Led Zeppelin, and I love that because I love that. I, those are my favorite bands, right? Yeah. Would I rather sing my own material? Maybe, but you know what? People yeah. people yeah. enjoy it, and it's sort of. It, I mean, you could say it's uh, nostalgic or whatever is nostalgia, but it's not really a legend show. We do it our own way, and I call it reimagined. So we're not doing the music exactly like the record like it's not carbon copy we're doing it our own way with strings i've put uh string parts in there i have violin players and orchestras and you get decent musicians right Uh, great musicians yeah yeah Yeah. so so when um when we do it we do it our own way so it's not uh it doesn't get old it doesn't get stale and um then i also took two years to write a beatles show right with orchestra right and Rolling Stones with orchestra. So That's very cool. We're doing. We just did this in Coburg a, a month ago. We did a um, uh, orchestral Beals and Rolling Stones, and we did it with a high school orchestra. And I have my own orchestra there too. So we had like seventy-five people on stage, and wow. the, it's so gratifying for me. I've done about close to a hundred shows now with high school and community-based orchestras and choirs, and. It's so gratifying for me to play with young, enthusiastic musicians. See, this is where I add and reinvent. So rather than get tired of doing stuff, I just do it in a different way. And now when I'm bringing in these youthful young musicians who are enthusiastic 
and they're they're excited, and I see the smiles on their face. It makes me smile. It oh, makes me get excited. It, it must be huge for them. And and it's a moment for them to remember, right? A lot of them do. A lot of them don't. But their parents in the crowd supporting them, smiling, coming up and saying thank you, you know. And I'm getting emails for the last now ten years from people that go uh, kids that went off to college. They say, you know. I'm taking music in university, and and you really inspired me. Let me tell that, you this: that is a, you know, that nothing can be more gratifying. That's right. Than that, that you touched on something in somebody's life that was a spark, and it went, wow, okay, I like this, right? When you're up in stage, you 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 touched on this before, but I want to follow up on it. What's going on inside of you? Are you accessible? If your kid comes and pulls your leg your your pant are you aware enough that there's your son or do you go into a completely different zone uh both yeah yeah i go into different zones um and a, a lot of that is uh, like in the podcast that i've been that we've been working on and what we're going to be doing is basically i'm going to be talking about my philosophies of uh in in interviews with people i'm asking them about how they survive and things and Part of the part of the show is talking about stories like what you just asked on stage. How are you on stage? Like, what keeps you involved, and how do you how do you in in you know invest yourself into the show and whatnot? I find that i i have a I have a process that works for me uh, as a band leader, hiring musicians and having the right band around you is critical and i've played with a lot of musicians hundreds 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 of musicians probably a thousand or more um and some of the combinations just don't work but you you do it but it just doesn't get you there you know what i mean but yep. you don't know that until you go out and do it so you you think this combination is going to be the one then you go out there and you go eh, just isn't working and sometimes it's the combination that you didn't really you know, you just say, well, we'll do it this way for now. And then you go, wow, that was amazing. Yeah. And that's the combination that you want to stick with, right? But I find there's a comf um, some comfort zone that you fall into when you, when you can depend on everybody that you're playing with. And you know that these people, this, this group knows what everybody's going to do. And I don't have to worry that guitar player is going to make a mistake or the bass player is going to flub this part. So I can just lose myself in the moment of this song. And when we get into that jam and we're just jamming, I'm jamming. Yeah. I, and I lose myself. I'm dancing. I'm spinning. I'm the people who haven't seen me perform. Like I, I have a lot of different. No self-consciousness, right? No, no. No, like you're not embarrassed. No, not embarrassed for for like, doing that in front of people. No, and and that's the thing. See, a lot of times you do get out of your, you get too much in your head yeah. where you're thinking everybody's looking at me, right? But when you have that band around you that right. you can depend on, right. you leave your head. And I actually, we used to do shows at Jeff Healy's down on uh, Bathurst here um, when it was in the basement, and it used to be packed with people. And it was so hot, they had fans on the side of the yeah, stage. Yeah, I was in there. Dripping. We had Pat Rush on the show, okay. who, who used to play with Jeff Healy, yeah. Dripping with sweat, and just totally, I would I would leave the stage, and I would tell the band, I was outside of my body. Yeah, like, I was, I was above me, <laughs> right. looking down on us playing. That's how much 
into a yeah. trance yeah. I was. I get it. At moments, not the whole time. Like you don't go on stage and okay, here I go. I'll you see know, you later. I'll see you later. <laughs> uh, I'm on autopilot. Take care. You, yeah, you can't do that. You, you're in it. Yeah. But there's just this, this separation that happens. Yeah. No, I get it, man. You just so much. Uh, that is a peaceful place and tranquility. I would call it tranquility. Sometimes know? when I'm doing interviews here in my apartment, there's nobody else here. It's just you and I. Mm. I am so focused on what's happening between the two of us because I'm absolutely in the moment and I'm never in the moment as much as I am in these environments. Mm -hmm. You know know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. And it's really a beautiful place to be. It really is. Yeah. So I want to ask you something. It's kind of the inevitable and you probably hate this question. Yeah, would you sing a, just just sing a little bit of Stairway to Heaven? Oh, a- cappella? No, because it's the inevitable. <laughs> Sometimes I have to go with the inevitable. And she's buying a stairway to heaven. <laughs> nice, you closed off the song. Aren't you smart? That's beautiful. <laughs> so listen, we uh, we just did an hour and a half. I could keep going. I mean, I could keep going, too. We'll have to do a part two at some point. My coach is telling me, Avram, you can't do shows that are too long. And I'm saying, I don't know, man. I really Uh, enjoy this. I don't know either. I enjoy this. See, I did the first podcast I did was two hours. Yeah. And we cut it down to 45. Yeah. But all that that we cut out is still good. And we're going to use that in in a part two somewhere. I have so much more to ask you. And I know that what you're saying is going to be phenomenally interesting to many people. Well, I appreciate that. And I hope I can help somebody uh, somewhere, just one person, you know? Hey, listen, so that's what I like to do at the end of the show. Um, I like to do two things. Number one, I just asked to like, I like to ask some sort of quirky questions about uh, your behavior, about your rituals, because I'm fascinated by that stuff. And then I like to wrap it up. By really uh, talking about what one can take out of the show. So let me ask you a couple questions. Okay. Uh, what's a ritual that you have um, having to do with your studio? Certain setups that you would do where you might place something. Are you into superstition at all or making sure that everything has its order? Well, my wife would tell you that I line my food up on my plate. Right. Right. She just pointed that out like last week to my son. We went out to uh, went out to a restaurant. We we're eating, <clears throat> and she said, "See, Griffin, look at his plate. All of his green beans are lined up in a row. His mashed potatoes are on the side, and and the, the you know everything's got his place. It's organized. It's organized. But my studio is what I would call organized chaos." Yeah. Uh, and I like it like that because if it's too organized, it bothers me. If I if I have to work in that environment, it's too organized, then it bothers me. If everything's kind of helter-skelter, but I know where it is. Like I put that over there. I'm just going to set this here for now, you know, or whatever. And then I go, okay, well, I set that over there. And I go and find it. I just kind of like it like that. I, I think it needs to look like it's worked in. Like if you ever walked into a professional studio, and I used to work in uh, in the same studio with Prince in uh, L.A. and stuff, yeah. and you know, stuff is everywhere. Right. Stuff is everywhere. Right. 
And um, it's inspiring. Like, look at my place. There's books all over. There's instruments. There's art. I get inspired by that. Well, I'll tell you a story about uh, Sunset Sound in in Hollywood. Um, we used to do. Um, I did a lot of demos there at Sunset Sound, and um, Prince was in the room next to us. And I used his room too sometimes, but um, they had a basketball court for Prince out in the in the uh, courtyard, and I used to play out there. And he'd come out and say, "Get off the court! I'm going to play now." <laughs> and you <laughs> so, would, I and guess. I'd leave. Yeah. But um, going into his room, which we were we did do, because. Uh, my engineer had the key so we would go in there and and uh and look around and and uh i knew his en- i knew prince's engineer really well and he would play me stuff he played me it's just a sidebar here one night he came over and said you got to come over prince just left you got to come over and hear what just happened so we went over to the studio and he pushed play on the recorder miles davis had dropped in oh. and was playing with prince and they were playing a Jimi hendrix song oh uh, voodoo child they really were, they were doing voodoo child and miles day was you know it was ridiculous right yeah but in prince's studio like the way he liked his studio kept he had his mic right at the board so he would sing from the board so he would engineer and sing and produce but in the studio there was sheila e's uh percussion on the corner then there was like a bass amp then there was a four-poster canopy bed. Oh. Then there was a drum set. Then there was guitar rig. And and then you look at it and just kind of go, what doesn't fit here? <laughs> yeah, right, right. Four-poster canopy bed. Now, hmm. what is, can you tell me about that, hmm, That Coke? makes and, a lot of sense, yeah. And Coke goes, uh, Coke was his engineer. His name was Coke. Yeah. So I'll leave it to your imagination yeah, why his name was you Coke. like Coke? So, so... Um, he says, yeah, you know, Prince has the four-poster canopy bed, and if you notice, it's mic'd. Oh. And, and so it was all mic'd up. And in the parking lot, that was right after Purple Rain came out. And in the parking lot, he had that car, that convertible from the movie. Yes. And he used to send some of his posse out to find girls oh. in that car. And they... Girls would see the car and know it was Prince's car, and they'd go, you want to meet Prince? They would bring him back, and Prince would introduce them to the four-poster canopy bed. How holy. And uh, mic it, and those sounds would make it into his records. And that is creative. So what I think people can take out of this show, and you tell me if you agree or not, um, is, is, as I said before, the inimitable soul of person kind and i I, we covered a lot of ground here Mm. since you were a child a teenager growing up doing the music until today that's what 63 years 64 64 when i'm 64 we're always conscious of that song and when we hit well a little a little uh introspective there i always told myself when i'm 64 i'm gonna do a beatles show and i am and you did good for you so i think that uh you're a very uh, focused person, and you were always very driven. You made decisions in your life, and you stuck with them, and you moved forward. And I guess when you had to sort of make a left at that junction along the road, you did. And I think that's a really, really uh, beautiful character trait you have. I really do. Thank you. 
Folks, you've been listening to Hat Radio. This has been episode 44 with Michael White. Michael, once again, I want to thank you so much for doing this. I'm really grateful that you came to to my place and that you spent the last couple of hours with me and that you were so open and honest and authentic and willing to share. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I miss you, brother. Well, we're back. Okay. (laughs) And thank you to my uh, listeners as well. Uh, If you like the show, then share the link. Uh, Of course, you can hear this at hatradio.ca. And you also have the option to subscribe if you'd like to help underwrite Hat Radio. So we'll be back again next week with another great show. My name is Avram Rosenzweig. This has been Hat Radio. It is the show that schmoozes. Do you like that? Show that schmoozes? Yeah, I like it. Yeah, thanks. Have a great week and God bless. In an increasingly complex world, Greif Philanthropic Solutions is proud to sponsor Hat Radio and the one and only Avram Rosenzweig. No one is better than Avram at simplifying the art of communication, providing inspiration, and unifying people of all backgrounds. GPS is there to help you navigate the charity landscape. Avram is there to help you navigate life. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height In the height